Blog Talk Radio. Lift every voice and sing Healer than heaven ring Ring with the harmony Of liberty Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening sky. Let it resound loud as the rolling sea. We have come over a way that has been watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the waters. Out from the gloomy past till now we stand at last. Where the white gleam of our bright star is cast. Well, good evening, everybody. So glad that Hunter Children to join. We won more again. But this year, we show Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio. This year, the Queen Quest head punning body of the Gullah Geechee Nation. So glad it will be the hostess of we Gullah Geechee Rhythm Radio Station. So glad that this year, even we are still celebrating. This your Black Music Month. And you know about this your program, we the give upliftment to the living legacy and to pay ancestral homage. So you couldn't do this show, but this your morning thing like that, without dedicate this your program to the two people who be make sure my song when we take piece of the first verse and piece of the second verse, put them together for our children this evening, bend the pen, bend to the key, and bend the grind around the world. So this year evening, we the dedicate this your program the James Weldon and Rosemont Johnson, who be did it from Jacksonville, Florida. And we know, wherever in the day, their spirit still the lift and it's still the same. So we're so glad that Hunter Chillin did y'all with we this evening. And so that Hunter can yet we the crack we teeth, but just who we be, you're in the Gullah Nation. And vote. All of we chillin' and think like a daddy, what did ya? Ain't this your land and who been ya? Fool, we get ya and think like a daddy. And so now, we so glad that we got people in the chat room already. Good evening, Sister Rosalind and think like a that. And so glad that hundred children are tuned in and a join we. For we, last evening, a celebration online of this young morning thing like that. Right away, we want to say thank you, thank you to all the 100 children who support me last week. Did it in Waterboro, did it, but Juneteenth and thing for Hilton Head, but did it in Newberry and thing like that. Every place I go on, they sell a book and thing like that, or one the CD and thing like that. So we're so glad that all the 100 children bring out the family and the children and be part of that. And right away, for all the 100 children who've been there, the wind down and thing like that in Charleston for Carrie Fuss. 
Well, you know this is the Caribbean American Heritage one too. So we're so glad that Sister Lorna Beck and all of the children, what the hell, she put that thing together there in Charleston, and we're so glad that the drums still a beat and things like that. Now, how the children know, say 1739, the Stoner Rebellion would take place here. After the Stoner Rebellion been going on and things like that, they took down from the paper these year thing they call the Slave Code. Well, we ain't been supposed to play the drum no more. Three or more, we ain't supposed to gather without the overseer that did it. And we ain't been supposed to have no land and things like that. So, you see, when we celebrate music, you can't never forget how people been to try to stop me from making music. So that's why this evening, even though I know every word, I let every voice and sing. I pick out that first part and put in that little bit of the next part. Because if I just want you to know, the kind of thing we're going through to get to this your point. And so all the hundred children what a day out on who are getting me can understand all the women to crack my teeth on. I'm gonna switch over to this for the rest of the evening. And as y'all know I'm Queen Quet, I'm Chiefess and Head of State for the Gullah Geechee Nation and so proud to again be hosting this broadcast which is sponsored by the Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition. So throughout the broadcast, anyone in the chat room, if you have questions or comments, I see you're already using it quite well. Uh, make sure to type those in. But anyone else who wants to reach me, even after the broadcast, you can always reach us at gullgeeko at AOL.com, G-U-L-L-G-E-E-C-O at AOL.com, or go to gullahgeechee.net, gullahgeechee.net. And Gullah is G-U-L-L-A-H. Geechee is correctly spelled G-E-E-C-H-E-E. G-U-L-L-A-H-G-E-E-C-H-E-E. All right, dot N-E-T. And you will find us there. Well, one of the things that the Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition has done over the years has been to archive a number of materials from around global archives. We have gotten what people stole and returned it to the Gullah Geechee Nation through the Al-Kibulan archive. So one of the things that we are consistent about is continuing to update the archive, but also to provide more and more material, whether that is through books, DVDs, CDs, oral history recordings, people's family reunion journals that get submitted to us, and I thank the Atkins family for providing us with materials from their reunion for this year, and also photographs and images. Well, if you have ever taken the time beyond humming, y'all know how y'all do, y'all do, lift every voice and sing, if you've gone beyond that point, and done what I did when I was a very little girl. We didn't have online then, so I had to go find a copy of this song that all the grown folks seemed to always know when they would tell us stand up and sing the Negro anthem, which we now often call the Black National Anthem in the United States. The song Lift Every Voice and Sing actually did not start off being a song, like many songwriters, myself included, would tell you. We started off writing a poem, and then a melody may have come to you or someone else, and your poem then became a song. Well, if you've gone beyond humming and actually looked up Lift Every Voice and Sing online, you may have seen the photographs in the images of the Johnson brothers, who actually are the ones who penned the song. 
So these men, you usually see them in suits looking very distinguished and so on. Well, it was truly a distinguishing marker for our people to have an anthem for black people, all right? Not the U.S. national anthem, which we could debate and argue all day whether or not we truly believe what's being said in that song as much as many African-American artists have blown that song's words out of here, hitting notes, singing it at baseball games and halftimes and everything else. We could debate that, all right? But I don't believe there would be any debate in the words of Lift Every Voice and Sing, like some of the words coming to me now, stony the road we trod, bitter the chasting rod, felt in the days when hope unborn had died, yet with a steady beat have not our weary feet come to the place for which our fathers sighed. Okay? So when I sang tonight the first stanza of the first verse, I then took from the second stanza of the second verse, put them together, and then sang it for you. That is not how the first verse is sang. So make sure that now, because we do have the Internet, please, if you do not have a copy of Lift Every Voice and Sing, look it up and print it out before this month ends for Black Music Month. Print it out and then memorize all of the verses, all of the words, and I would sing that song every day until I knew all the words. And I'm often intrigued by how many people who are, they appear to be, show I put it that way, appear to be older than me, look like they got some years on me, that actually don't know the song beyond saying lift every voice and sing. And they may know, you know, the first couple of words that I sing tonight, but don't ask them to go to the second verse. And definitely don't go to the third one, all right, because if you don't have that sheet of paper there, you can forget it. Now, in many black Baptist churches, some of the hymnals also have that song in the hymnal. So it was very interesting to research this song for this month. And I'm not doing it just because it is Lift Every Voice and Sing, just because it's considered the Negro anthem or the black national anthem. I am doing it because James Weldon Johnson and his brother, John Rosamond Johnson, have roots here in the Gullah Geechee Nation in Jacksonville, Florida. Have y'all noticed a consistent theme this month about the music? I think so. If you haven't, go back and listen to the archive and pick up on that. So let me tell you a little bit about these distinguished men who had the pen and had the fingertips not only to write but to then key the music to the song. James Weldon Johnson was actually born William Johnson, all right, when he was born in Jacksonville, Florida. His birthday was just this month as well. He was born on the 17th of June in 1871. So after the Civil War had ended, emancipation was coming in, the Reconstruction era was going on, this man was born. He changed his name, his middle name, from William to Weldon in 1913. I found it interesting that he chose Weldon, and I wondered when he was alive, did he pronounce it Weldon or Weldon? Because in Gullah Geechee, it would be well done. So, and he did do well for himself. He became a teacher. He was a poet, as I mentioned already, a songwriter, as we know. And he was also a civil rights activist of sorts during this Reconstruction period. Now, his mother was the first 
female black public school teacher in the state of Florida, all right? His father was actually a head waiter. Now, nowadays, y'all might be looking a little sketchy about, oh, wow, she was a school teacher and she had a waiter as husband. Yes, all right? People were working people, and they worked together to build their families. That still will work if you try. Now, here it is that the parents actually were born in Nassau, Bahamas. Now, the interesting thing about that is many of the people in Nassau, Bahamas, and on the family islands of the Bahamas, actually have their roots in the Gullah Geechee Nation because it was their family members that migrated from the Carolina, Georgia coast into the Bahamas in the 1700s. So now with freedom being here, it was no doubt that many of them would migrate back into Florida where they could find work and settle back in the land and be back on this side of the water. So where his great-grandparents or grandparents actually were born and raised, I don't have yet that information, but I am really intrigued, and if there's anyone listening that has that information, please email me at G-U-L-L-G-E-E-C-O at AOL.com because we'd love to know if they are connected to our Seminoles that are in the Bahamas, which are actually Gullah Geechis. But no doubt. Here they had their children and made their home in Jacksonville, Florida, the southernmost part of the Gullah Geechee Nation. We go from Jacksonville, North Carolina, to Jacksonville, Florida, and 30 to 35 miles inland from the Sea Islands to the St. John's River. So the St. John's River runs to Jacksonville, so no doubt how easy this song ran back up that river and reached all of our people. Well, James Weldon Johnson, who was James William, was actually the second child out of three, all right, the middle child. He loved reading and music. And, of course, his mom being a school teacher, everything that you see about him, they always say that, of course, his parents encouraged this. All right, piano playing, musicianship back then was a big thing. And people always taught music and all of this. And still in some schools you could still learn it the way it was even when I was in school. But a lot of budget cuts, people think you should cut the arts. But actually there's a whole other dynamic that happens with the brain when you're dealing with music and dance. So after graduating from where his mom taught, because can you imagine that? You go to school where your mama teaches, you know you shouldn't be getting in no trouble, right? He ended up going not only to Nassau, to family there, but he also went on to New York before he decided to continue his education. Now, his brother, who co-wrote Lift Every Voice and Sing, as John Rosamond Johnson was born on August 11, 1873, now, he's the youngest out of the three, all right? So James and Helen Johnson, who are the parents, all right, noticed that, again, he too expressed interest in music, and so they had him taking piano lessons at the age of four. Obviously, I think we'd all agree that paid off pretty well. He eventually also ended up in New York because many people will say that he was one of the developers of the Harlem Renaissance, Era, And we could have spent this whole month and we could spend like poetry month on discussing the Harlem Renaissance and not run out of things to discuss in an hour's worth of time on a Monday. All right. So Stanton School, where their mother taught, is where both 
John Rosamond and James William or James Weldon ended up going to school. They also were educated by their mom while being there. They both continued on with music, all right? James Weldon decided to go on to college after, you know, the visiting the family and all that, and Rosamond studied classical music. He decided to go to the New England Conservatory in Boston, where I'm going to be heading next month, not to New England Conservatory, but to Boston to speak. So it's very interesting to me because I've never really done a lot of reading about John Rosemont until I decided to do this show. So I thought it not robbery to share this about him and the journey that I found out, that he even took some time up to be involved in something called musical comedy. All right, and I know if anybody like me remembers when you used to listen to radio and they used to have these shows on that were radio shows before people started getting that black and white TV that you ended up with that flies on top of them and things like that. Okay, then. So I'm sure all of the noises and all those kind of things are part of that, as well as, you know, vaudeville, all that stuff. But I thought it was interesting because, again, as I said, when you look at their images and you see them looking so like distinguished gentlemen, I would have never really thought about musical comedy, especially when someone studied classical music. But that's what he did. He then eventually went on to London. He developed his singing and being a baritone. And he also started working in musicals as a vocalist as a result of that. So you have some very well-versed musicians that we are talking about when we talk about these two that came together with a poem first in 1900 that gets the music added to it in around 1905. So Lift Every Voice and Sing wasn't something like now folks want to jump in the studio, you want to put your whole track down, you want to get it all down at one setting. That's not necessarily the way things go when folks are spiritually moved to actually create them. And so I know some of y'all are saying, well, if his brother went one direction, where this one went to the Conservatory of Music in Boston, where did the other one go? Well, actually, James Weldon Johnson wasn't up there. He attended Atlanta University, and he received an A.B. degree there in 1894. He then went to Hampton, Georgia. He taught there for a while. And then, you know, his family was middle class in Jacksonville. Like a lot of the people there are descendants of the upper to middle class blacks. So many times, even now, if one of the tellers say they're going to get you a thing like that, they tell you, uh-uh, not at all. And so they oftentimes will not even deal with a topic as being Gullah Geechee or relating to it in one in any way at all. So his family um, was an upper class, middle to upper class black family. So for him, it was like a whole new dynamic working in a rural area in Hampton, Georgia, because Jacksonville is very urbanized and has been a city for quite some time. So he then ended up having a chance, though, before he graduated from college to go to Chicago when they had Colored People's Day that had a number of those each year at these different expositions. So he went to the Columbian Exposition, and he got to actually hear Frederick Douglass there and got to hear poems that Paul Lawrence Dunbar did, and then they all became friends. So y'all are seeing a, a black history theme emerging here because those are names more often not you don't hear until Black History Month. Well, when he graduated from Atlanta University, he went back to Jacksonville. He became the principal of 
the same school that he and his brother attended and that his mom actually had been an instructor at. Now, isn't that wonderful? And don't you know that his mama had to be proud to say not only did he return home, he returned home with a degree and then basically followed in her footsteps and became the principal of the Stanton School there in Jacksonville. Well, it's very interesting how out of that story emerges the song that's now known around the world. Because while James Weldon Johnson was the principal at the school, he decided to put together this poem for the students at the school to present in honor of President Abraham Lincoln. Well, after he put the poem together, he and his brother, he talked to his brother about it, I guess he gave him words to it and so on, and they were able to start to get together to eventually put a melody to this song. And so eventually it sounded like we hear it now. So when it was a middle school, and in fact, Stanton School was the only middle school in Florida for people of African descent, all right, at this time that we're talking about, the 1900. And so once this was written as a poem, later when the music started being entered into it, they started considering it a hymn. Essentially, that's why I remember I mentioned many of the Black Baptist Church hymnal books do have this lift every voice and sing in it, all right? So, and of course, what church folks are going to have a problem? Lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty, okay? Opening lines of it. Well, it's really interesting that in James Weldon Johnson's autobiography, which is called Along This Way, that was published back in 1933. Yes, y'all say, wow, during like the Great Depression era. Yes, we're in another one now, but they keep telling y'all so, I don't know how. Um, There was the process that he started to talk about in the book. And he said this, quote, I got my first line, lift every voice and sing. Not a startling line. But I worked along grinding out the next five. When near the end of the first stanza, there came to me the lines, sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. All right, sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. The spirit of the poem had taken hold of me, and I finished the stanza and turned it over to Rosamond. So see, those lines that he's talking about there are those lines that I tell you that more often than not, most people start humming on the by the third line of the song as it is. So much less to get to the final verse, the third verse, and start singing all that. Y'all know y'all be humming, right? Y'all know y'all be humming. So he said when he got through all that, he turned it over to his brother. Well, they started to collaborate using pen and paper. I know some of y'all with computer, y'all know what pen and paper is, no more Google that. Um, So they started using pen and paper, and they started working on it. 
What I also thought was really interesting, I'm going to read this quote to you too. He said, quote, I paced back and forth on the front porch, repeating the lines over and over to myself, going through all of the agony and ecstasy of creating. I could not keep back the tears and made no effort to do so. I was experiencing the transport to the poet's ecstasy. Feverish ecstasy was followed by the contentment, the sense of serene joy, which makes artistic creation the most complete of all human experiences, end quote. Now, you talk about a powerful statement, and I'm sure all the artists that are listening, that are hearing that, that probably sounds to you and feels to you like it feels to me as a person who loves to create, and no doubt that this man also wrote the poem, The Creation, right? And that this is so eloquent, it in and of itself is a song that I could easily see choreographing a dance to. I could not keep back the tears and made no effort to do so. I was experiencing the transports of the poet's ecstasy. Feverish ecstasy was followed by the contentment, the sense of serene joy. So to hear his words about the writing process is tremendous. So one would feel like, well, wow, he must have just kept on singing this song, and his brother must have just kept on playing this song, and they must have just, this must have been their song. You know, Life Jennings has a song, so when my song come on the radio, I forget all my troubles. So you would think that's how they would feel like about this, they get piano all the time and do it. Well, actually, as I read about this, it said that there were 500 voices when they finally had the children present this, they made up a chorus of 500 of the children, right? But then when both of them moved away from Jacksonville, they didn't think anymore about that occasion, the celebration of Lincoln's birthday, about this song, about nothing. They were keeping it moving, as we say nowadays. Well, the children didn't forget. So the school children in Jacksonville, Florida, here in the Gullah Geechee Nation, are the ones that kept right on singing the song. They would go to other places and they sing the song. So many of them became school teachers, and then they taught it to their students. And those students sang the song. So they said they were really surprised that in 20 years, the song was being sung in schools and churches on special occasions, first all over the South. Then the next thing, they start hearing it in other parts of the country. To that, James Weldon Johnson wrote this, Nothing that I have done has paid me back so fully in satisfaction as being part creator of this song. I am always thrilled and deeply when I hear it sung by Negro children. I am lifted up on their voices, and I am also carried back and enabled to live through again the exquisite emotions I felt at the birth of the song. He said, I've often marveled at the results that have followed what we consider an incidental effort, an effort made under stress and with no intention other than to meet the needs of a particular moment, the only comment we can make is that what we wrote 
is better than what we knew, that we wrote better than we knew. Now, that's a powerful statement. It's really a humble statement also. It didn't act like, oh, yeah, of course we knew it would be a success or we expected it to go around the world or anything, but that's very humbling. And more often than not, when someone is a part of history as it is being created, as it is being lived out, then not only are you not thinking about that at that moment, but many of the people around you are taking it for granted. I am sure that people who now sing the song in Jacksonville may have a certain level of pride, but I wonder how many Jacksonville, Florida school children know this song, know all three verses of the song, and actually can sing it all the way through without looking at paper. I wonder how many of them know the story of these two brothers or of their mom or of the Stanton School. And all my years visiting Jacksonville, I have yet to have anybody talk to me about it. Now, if I bring him up, he's like, oh, yeah, we know he was born here. But that's about the size of it. I've never heard anyone take me by the Stanton School. I've never had a discussion with anyone about it. So I would be intrigued to know how many children today are in the schools in the Jacksonville, Florida area that know this song, much less know the history of this poem turned to him, turned to national anthem for people of African descent in North America. It is very intriguing to me to read the various commentaries and biographies and other things that are out here about these men. One thing that I thought was very, very interesting that I learned this year, this month, in fact, Black Music Month this year, about James Weldon Johnson, that, of course, many of you, because you know that I do a lot of work at the United Nations, will probably say, well, that's why she's interested. I learned that he was a diplomat in addition to being a poet. So, yes, that is intriguing. But what was more intriguing was that we share an alma mater, Columbia University in New York. So one of the things that they said really pushed Johnson on further was that he was very upset about racial stereotypes that were being propagated by popular music. So in 1903, that's what made him start taking graduate courses at Columbia University and then expanding his literary horizons as a result of that. That is what pushed him to go on and to do that. That's what pushes me to continue with the Gullah Connection, to make sure that Gullah Geechee's are not stereotyped um, and then turned into stereotypical characters and caricatures of our culture because many people out here who are performing artists that many of you are well aware of, um, that is what they've done with the culture. And so that was something that truly, truly I appreciated in my readings preparing for this month. And at first, it was not even in preparation for the radio show. It was just for my own edification during Black Music Month to learn more about the men behind this music. Well, you say, well, okay, well, that's interesting. That's about him going to college. What that got to do with him being a diplomat? Well, in 1906, he got a consulship, and he ended up in Puerto Cabello in Venezuela. And so he was able to write poems and novels and things then. Then in 1909, he went over to Corinto, Nicaragua, 
And so that's where he married a woman named Grace Nail, who was actually a daughter of a real estate developer in New York City. All right? So when they, while he was in Nicaragua, he wrote a book that some of you may have, and I believe I have it on my iPad and got it for free. A lot of the biographies and autobiographies of many of the people from the Reconstruction era and, quote, unquote, black history figures, you can actually go on Amazon and get them for $0 for absolutely free. The autobiography of an ex-colored man, I'm going to check when I come off the air and double-check if I don't already have it on my iPad. And if I don't, I'm definitely downloading it tonight. But I know that we have copies of it. The autobiography of an ex-colored man was published in 1912 but did not have James Weldon Johnson's name on it at that time because he felt like if he put his name out there, they were going to think that it was all a factual story and not a novel. It's actually a novel, the autobiography of an ex-colored man. But a very intriguing title, nonetheless, to write a book uh, about, especially during that era of time. You know, I know some of y'all say somebody could write one now. Um, so it's the same title, right? And so he ended up, you know, continuing to do things. But a year after he did his publication, he was a bit frustrated um, because they weren't really giving him any major post as a diplomat. So he resigned the consulship and then came back to the U.S. And so then he stayed in Jacksonville for a while and then moved to New York City and became an editorial writer for a publication called New York Age. And that is when he really got into what people call the civil rights movement or the equal rights movement at that point because it wasn't really considered civil rights then, so to speak. People think of the 60s when you say that, but we're talking about way before that. But he was champion for equal, equal rights in his writings in the New York age. And then his first collection of poetry that many of you who love poetry have probably read was called 50 Years and Other Poems. And so... That was the first book that he published, and they actually wrote about it in the New York Times. So, of course, he was networked. You all say, oh, well, you know, if he married a wife that was real estate developers, his dad-in-law, no wonder he could really get those kind of things done. Well, this is where the reconnection comes with the Harlem Renaissance and him and his brother and them making their way up there. His second set of poetry, interestingly enough, is something that I remember from a play because it's called God's Trombones, all right, Seven Negro Sermons in Verse. And that came out in 1927. And so he went ahead and he continued to write on and on, and he did not pass until June the 26th. So interestingly enough, all right, you have him being born in June, June 17th and 1871. He also passed away in June and 1938 on June 26th. All right, so in a couple of days would be the time to truly, again, give honor to him during this Black Music Month. He, at that time, was living, he was at his summer home in Maine, and his car somehow was struck by a train. All right? So somehow with that tragedy happening, he passed away. But they said that in the research that over 2,000 people went to his home-going services in Harlem at that time. And so, again, 
the relationship that he and his brother John Rosemont Johnson had in Harlem was something that obviously was celebrated during the time that they were there, not just people who are looking back over time and calling the era of time the Harlem Renaissance and thinking of Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes and, you know, can you imagine somebody reading the creation and then hearing a piece from uh, John B. Simple and, you know, back and forth. Can you imagine that? And with the music that could have been playing in that room, can you picture that, you know? But here it is that during that time, while his brother was also up in New York and did things. John Rosamond Johnson went about working. He taught different students music. Um, he also, when he came back to the U.S., he was an organist and a choir director at the local Baptist church to make sure to let you know he was part of the Baptist church now. Um, and, and that's why I guess the Baptist churches have this song in the hymnals. He also published some different musical arrangements and accompaniments of other pieces that his brother wrote his poems to. And it was in 1899 that both John Rosemont Johnson and James Weldon Johnson moved to New York, and they actually settled in Harlem. So later on from doing well, that could come the summer home and all that in Maine could come later. Um, the interesting thing about it is where his brother had, you know, the place in Harlem and then a place out in Maine. John Rosemont Johnson is actually noted as the first African-American, and I might say Gullah Geechee, to purchase a house west of Lenox Avenue and 136th Street. All right? So that's very interesting for that time frame. So he basically broke a boundary by going into another district, so to speak, and buying a home there. And I know some of you are saying, wow, I just thought home was always all black. Well, it's had its times, and right now it's in the gentrification stage again. So he was the first one, first black person to go cross there, all right? Not cross 125th Street for y'all who remember the movie, but he bought a house west of Lenox and 136, all right, Huggins area. So... That's when he really got to connect with a number of other folks in that area that even, you know, made other connections, had other groups going on and the like in New York. He had a number of different things that he did during the whole menstrual tradition era. Uh, they did not like what was going on with minstrelsy, so that is why they avoided that and tried to create a new paradigm, and so that there were things like Lift Every Voice and saying where people of African descent could hold their heads up high, and so that they could be looked at with respect. Like I say to you, when you find pictures of these two men, you see distinguished-looking gentlemen. And I find it really interesting that um, when he wrote for the stage, he wrote some different things along with his brother, and one of them was called the Congo Love Song. That's something that I'm more intrigued about looking into to learn more about that particular piece, the Congo Love Song. Now, he also wrote the score for Emperor Jones, and some of y'all remember Paul Robeson, God bless the dead, was in Emperor Jones in 1921. So they, he wrote the score for that production. And so he did everything, and, and it's interesting because when you look at what they say, his musical arrangements range from, quote, J. 
jazz to African rhythms, voodoo, and other music depicting African-American life, end quote. All right? So that is very interesting and intriguing to even hear voodoo put in there in terms of musical genre, of course. And, again, this coming from someone who would have been sort of in the upper crust part of the Jacksonville area. So, you know, we could we could elaborate more on that on another time and do some juxtapositions also with the work of Zora Neale Hurston and her work as an anthropologist and how people don't talk about that, but they do talk about the quote-unquote Negro dialect that she presented. So, you know, and people looking at where they came out of with their educational backgrounds and whether or not they should or should not have presented those things that now people celebrate as pieces that came out of the Harlem Renaissance, including the works of Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston, because of, quote, them putting it in dialect, end quote. So the voodoo thrown in there is a very interesting spice, shall we say, that we're adding to this pot. Well, John Rosemond Johnson, who, as stated earlier, was born August 11th, 1873, lived until November 11th, 1954, in New York, and unlike in the case of his brother with the tragedy with the train hitting his car, he passed away in his sleep uh, when he did go on home. And I'm sure that these two brothers have everyone still lifting their voices and singing where they are, no doubt, in what many of us would call soul heaven today. And so it is definitely a blessing, and I thought it not robbery. Um, to talk to you tonight about not just the song Lift Every Voice and Sing, but about these men who were definitely behind it. And so uh, now if you have the chat room, it's been open all evening, but I'm going to take a chance to look at some of the comments, share some of those with you, while I also open up the phone line for those who want to call in and chat or share any of your memories about this song Lift Every Voice and Sing. Uh, once again, our phone line is 347-324-3903, 347-324-3903, okay? And so please go ahead, give us a call, and definitely if you want to email us, even after the broadcast, if you have more information to share, to shed even more light on these brothers, on their writings, on their music, on some of the things that I've talked about tonight, um, please email us at G-U-L-L-G-E-E-C-O at AOL.com. Now, Rosalind, you asked the question, who wrote that review? Which review actually are you referring to in terms of who wrote which review? Because I did do quotes from the actual autobiography but which review is it that you're mentioning? Is that where you're saying the, the quotation came from about the range of music, or are you referring to something else? Um, once you tell me that, then I might be able to tell you that. Okay, I thought that's what you meant. So actually, that wasn't in a review. That was just um, an author named Sexena, S-A-X-E-N-A, um, that wrote to say that Johnson's musical arrangements, what they were like, that in the film that he did, even with Emperor Jones, that the Johnson's musical arrangements range from jazz to African rhythms, voodoo, and other music depicting African-American life. So you may be able to find more if you even look into Emperor Jones and reviews about Emperor Jones with Paul Robeson. So no problem. 
And then, um, yeah, the book is definitely awesome. It is that book and also the autobiography. I would definitely recommend to people to read. Y'all know I always like to encourage that you read. And so definitely James Weldon Johnson was the lyricist, and his brother was the songster, shall we say. So I think they made an outstanding team and bringing it together. And I appreciate the fact that you, you is letting folks know that um, Queen Quetta ain't but 25 years old. I appreciate you letting them know that. All right, then. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, so I appreciate all the comments. And definitely, it is beautiful, the statements about the creative process. I think, you know, hearing someone say that is poetic ecstasy that they have writing at any given time, it's something I can relate to. It is also extraordinary to read it and to know that someone said this and said it so long ago. Again, let's put this in context. You're talking about we are commemorating 150 years since the Emancipation Proclamation was read. Now, you're talking about this man being born right after that time. So as we say, right after slavery time. Big shoot, be done, done. So here it is. This man is coming out of that. He's into the era of Reconstruction. They're heading into the era of Jim Crow. No doubt he's not just getting whatever he wants wherever he wants it, although his family is, some, as some would say at that point in time, well off for a black family. He still had to fight a lot of challenges and barriers. Once again, because of the position his family was in, he could have just as soon just sat back, the two of the brothers, and been school teachers right there at Stanton School in Jacksonville, the principal and the school teacher. They could have done music right there. They could have lived fine right there, married and everything. They did not have to then go around the world as they did, and they definitely did not have to do that which was encouraging because they could have just done what gets them paid, which, as you've heard during that era of time, was minstrelsy. So they could have just as soon just done that as opposed to taking the route that they took, that thank God God directed them along this route to do something prideful and to help their people lift their heads and not only just lift them but have them sing as they did so. So, you know, we truly honor these men and all that they left behind, and including the words about the creative process and the ecstasy of that process. And so they broke down a number of barriers that I don't believe they get credit for by the depictions that they left behind. And full analysis of the song, Lift Every Voice and Sing, would really help you if you would juxtapose it to, let's say, even the film that was done by Spike Lee many years ago, Bamboozled. Many people of African descent didn't appreciate that film because they didn't get it. They had no real understanding of that. There's also a documentary, if you can ever find it, because they showed it one Black History Month and then it seemed like they made it disappear, called Mo Funny, The History of Black Comedy in America. Remember I mentioned musical comedy. Well, obviously... And then doing musical comedy, he realized, oh, look at all this buffoonery that's going on, all this minstrelsy that's going on. I don't want to take that route. I want to do something else. I'm a classically trained musician. I can do something else. And my brother and I would do something else. And then them encountering people like Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Frederick Douglass, 
Paul Robeson. All of this happening at the same time, when, again, it's no easy time for our people. And then even in the Jim Crow era, you then have the Great Depression that they're living through. You know it wasn't easy. And so when you can be in the midst of all that and sing a song like Left Every Voice and Sing, God bless you. So definitely this is something that we still should be able to sing even now. And so the same way that they broke down barriers in terms of racial stereotypes, that is one of the things that the Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition continues to do in terms of breaking down cultural and ethnic stereotypes by making sure that we celebrate and depict the truth of our story as Gullah Geechee's and who we be down here in the Gullah Geechee Nation and things like that. And so we definitely want all of you not only to continue celebrating black music through purchasing it, purchasing these books that I talked about tonight, reading them, reading them with your family, with your children, learning all the words of the Negro National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing, being able to sing it with pride and with your head held high. But also, we want you to enter into the roots of where all of this comes from. Because as you heard, they went on and still worked in the Baptist church. No doubt they were quite familiar with the praise house and with spirituals. And so you have here the Gullah Geechee Nation International Music and Movement Festival being our way of celebrating not only black music, but Gullah Geechee musical traditions and how that connects also to our movements, our dance movements and the movements for our rights. We are still in a process of standing up to eliminate racial stereotypes around the world, ethnic stereotypes around the world, cultural stereotypes around the world, because when there is ignorance, there's death. People often want to do away with that which they don't understand. So when they can learn more, then they can do more in a positive way. And say, if Hunter doesn't know better, Hunter supposed to do better. And so we do our job with the Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition, the Gullah Geechee Angel Network, the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Committee of Northeast Florida that sponsors the festival. We are the secondary sponsors because God is the primary sponsor, along with all mobile productions and African movement productions because we want to bring the truth of our culture and who we be down here to other rest of people and through music, through dance, through song, and through people understanding our right to self-determination and how it did not begin with us. It didn't begin all the way in 1900 with us starting to sing, lift every voice and sing, but it began in those bush hours and those brush hours. It began when our ancestors started beating the drum during the Stono Rebellion. It began on the shores of the motherland when we had our rituals and our circular dances there that evolved in North America as the shout. This is where it began and this is where it continues. This is where it's kept. That is why when they talk about how the spiritual emotions were there in the midst of it, and that's why I read you the part about the pacing back and forth on the porch. Well, the porch of the St. Helena Branch Library, essentially, is our performing arts space where this festival will be held this year. This will be the first festival ever held there, and I would love to have that cacophony of 500 voices, the way in which there were 500 children that sang at Stanton School to initiate to be the voice and the vocal drum, bringing into the world this baby that's now lift every voice and sing. That is the Negro anthem. And so you are talking about 
a powerful continuum that goes on from back of Yona and things like that, back of Yona in 1900 and things like that, still going on 113 years after the fact. Right here will be the shout that should take. And so I definitely honor the legacy of the Johnson family for the birthing of these two men and for the instilling pride in them, in that household, in that family, that caused them to then have us that all have sung this song, sing it with pride even up to today and up to this moment. And so when you hear this song, Lift every voice and sing Till earth and heaven ring Ring with the harmonies of liberty Let our rejoicing rise high as the list Ning skies, let it resound loud as the rolling sea. Sing a song full of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song. Full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun. Let us march on till victory is won. Stony the road we trod, bitter the chastened rod, felt in the days when hope unborn had died. Yet with a steady beat, have not our weary feet come to the place for which our Father sighed? We have come over a way that with tears has been watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered. Out from the gloomy past till now we stand at last where the white gleam of our bright star is cast. God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, Thou who has brought us thus far on the way, Thou who has by thy might led us into the light. 
keep us forever in the past, we pray. Bless our feet, stray from the places, our God, where we met thee. Lest our hearts, drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee. Shadowed beneath thy hand, may we forever stand true to our God. True to our native land. Honey, children, you know, right, you that women stand always true to God and true to we native land. Right, in the Gullah Geechee Nation. From Jacksonville, North Kakalaki, to Jacksonville, Florida. All these are Sea Island, 30 to 35 miles inland to the St. John River. May these words find a place in our heart. May it stand and may the Gullagichis sing. Lift every voice. And you know what? When honor children sing, may freedom start for ring. This year the queen quit, head upon the body of the Gullagichi nation. So glad that honor children tune in to Gullagichi Rhythm Radio Station. Join me at the Gullagichi Nation International Music and Movement Festival. Go on, you to www.gullagichi.info. Hunter Chiller, this year evening, we have a go. I keep on singing you. God bless you. Thank you, thank you.